0: Well, today as we continue our summer series entitled Jesus in His Own Words, I'm going to introduce what is perhaps the most important of all the I Am statements proclaimed by Jesus. And I say that not because I have the privilege of presenting it, but because if the bold claim we're going to examine today were not true, then the other six statements would not have a leg to stand on. Now, many men throughout the course of history have made extraordinary claims. However, making an extraordinary claim and then backing it up with irrefutable proof in front of many witnesses quickly distinguishes the true from the false, or as we're going to discover today, the divine from the mortal. Now, we all encounter many enemies on our journey through life. And they certainly don't disappear the day we enter God's kingdom, do they? In fact, the opposite is often true. And some enemies are more powerful than others and more difficult to overcome. But there is one enemy we can never defeat, whether on our own or with the support of many friends. And this particular enemy will eventually claim all of us, regardless of our gender, our economic status... Our popularity or our ethnicity and once this enemy is determined to pursue us there is no escape and the enemy I speak of is our ultimate enemy death because there's no way to evade our appointment with the grave and everyone in this room will experience it one way or another because none of us are getting out of here alive now, we can deceive ourselves and pretend as though our date of departure is not imminent and far off in the future somewhere, but a day will come when the flood waters are going to rise and we're all going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the writer of Hebrews put it this way, it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. Death is our ultimate enemy. It's no respecter of persons, and it shows no favoritism. It claims the young and the old alike, the good and the bad, including the rich and famous, and no one is granted immunity. Now, this may sound grim, but there is good news here because Jesus has intervened on our behalf, and he defeated the effects and consequences of this horrible enemy called death, and he did it totally and completely. And this points directly to our sixth I am statement proclaimed by Jesus in this series. And our passage today comes from John chapter 11. But rather than jump right into that statement, I want to begin with verse 1 and allow the scriptures to lead us there instead. And if we pay close attention to the details along the way, I think we'll discover some meaningful lessons. I've entitled today's message, Do You Believe This? Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for this unique opportunity and privilege to present your word to our family today. Lord, it would be foolish for me to think that my words could have an impact on anybody. Lord, I've done what I can do. Now we need you to do what you can do. Anoint me, Lord, for the proclamation of your word that will fall on listening and obedient ears and it's with great expectation that we thank you in jesus name amen and as we look together in god's word today may the lord be with you so i'll be reading from the niv today you can follow along in your bibles on your phones or on the screen behind me john chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. now a man named lazarus was sick He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who later poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. So we see here that Jesus is summoned by the sisters and notified that their brother Lazarus is ill. And so they must have understood that his condition was life-threatening. Now, this was not this family's first encounter with Jesus, and nor would it be their last. Because earlier in his ministry, Luke records the familiar first encounter where Jesus was invited into their home, and you recall that while Martha labored alone in the kitchen preparing the meal, Mary sat idle at the feet of Jesus. And although Martha lodged a protest with Jesus over Mary's perceived laziness, Jesus gently rebuked Martha. In fact, reading this first account can leave us with the impression that Martha is easily distracted, anxious, worrisome, and a complainer who prefers doing for Jesus rather than abiding with him as Mary did. At first glance, not a good look for Martha. However, as we'll soon discover, we should avoid judging someone's character and spiritual condition based upon one brief encounter or observation. Why? Because oftentimes we're too quick to judge without considering all the facts. And our interpretations and observations can be shaped by our own biases or even influenced by the perceptions and opinions of others. In addition, our flesh is prone to see what it wants to see at times, rather than see things as they really are, and we're naturally quick to find fault in others. I, too, was hard on Martha, but as we're going to discover today, she certainly deserves the benefit of the doubt. Now, I love the immediate response by the sisters to their brother's sickness, A simple but often neglected lesson that when adversity and hardship invade our lives, we should always summon Jesus first. But sometimes we pursue other remedies first. And then if they don't work, then we go to Jesus. However, that's a faulty process to problem solving. Because no situation is too big or too little to inquire of God. You see, the Holy Spirit within is an excellent counselor and consultant. And he excels at problem solving. In fact, he knows exactly what must be done in every circumstance. And that means there's nothing happening in your life right now that he hasn't seen before. And he isn't capable of redeeming. But you have to take time to ask and listen and obey if necessary and then trust him for the outcome. The mayor of Gotham City was not a brilliant man, but he did know how to solve his crime problems. When the Joker or the Penguin skated into town, he didn't try other remedies first. Instead, he shined a bright light in the sky to summon his rescuer, Batman. And we have someone available to us that's much more effective than the caped crusader. And he's willing to intervene on your behalf when you take time to ask. And he doesn't hide in a cave and he doesn't mask his true identity. And he offers us open invitations such as whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Never. Will I leave or forsake you? You see, Jesus invites us to call on him as our first remedy for any life situation, big or small. Because he's our savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming king 24-7. He doesn't rest and he doesn't take a vacation. Jesus has all the bases covered and a track record that we can depend on. And Mary and Martha knew that. Because they invested time pursuing an intimate relationship with him. Something that he invites us all to do. Jesus was more than a casual acquaintance. He was a close trusted friend who loved the sisters dearly. And as we'll see, he was preparing to increase and deepen their understanding of who he really was. Verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So we're clued in here that Lazarus' condition will not end in death. Instead, it will result in what? In God being glorified. Because God's glory is always the primary kingdom objective. You see, we tend to think life is about us. And that's because we're selfish, finite creatures that lack wisdom. But there's so much more at stake in the universe. There's so much more going on than we know. Not only within this visible world we can see, but within the invisible world that we can't see. And Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 11 when he said, For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. Everything is intended for his glory. There are no exceptions. The heavens and the earth are not about us. They're about him. And although we benefit from his goodness, his goodness ultimately brings him glory. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, I want to stop here because I don't want to skip over the significance of this brief phrase, Jesus loved Martha. In fact, the implications of this text are staggering when you consider that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, not only loved Martha, but he knew her by name. Well, think about that for a minute. This is the same Jesus that created the earth and everything in it. Same Jesus that upholds everything by the word of his power. I mean, he's got important things to tend to. Yet, in spite of how big he is, he knew Martha's name. And he knows your name too. He does. He knows your name just as he knew Martha's. In fact, Luke chapter 12 says he has every hair on your head numbered. In fact, he knows more about you than you know about you. And he loves you dearly anyway. That means no matter how bad you think you messed up your life, he will not abandon you. He knows your name. And he loves you deeply. Why? I don't know. He loves you because you belong to him. And hear me now his love for you is not based on your performance. The issue of your value was settled at the cross. You're one of his in spite of your faults, and there isn't anything or anyone that can ever change that. Verse 6 So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now the text doesn't tell us what Jesus did for two days. It only tells us what he didn't do. He didn't drop everything and catch a camel back to Bethany to heal Lazarus before he passed away. But surely that's what the sisters wanted. But God doesn't always give us what we want. Because he prefers to give us what we need. And what we want and what we need are not usually the same thing because our human wisdom is governed by our flesh and our inability to see down the road. For example, when we encounter a difficult trial or a hardship, no matter what it is, our default preference is for God to rescue us immediately from the difficulty so we can avoid the suffering because nobody likes pain, especially me. But the truth is, God doesn't always remove trials immediately. Sometimes he prefers to walk with us through the trial because that's how we learn to depend on him. And that's how we grow as kingdom disciples. God always sees the bigger picture and the bigger need. And by postponing his journey two days, although it didn't seem to make sense at the time, Jesus was executing a much better plan that would give the sisters what they needed. Another reminder that when it seems like God is slow in responding, pray he'll give you what you need according to his will, not yours. Now I admit this can be a difficult prayer because there's a built-in resistance in all of us to surrender our own will to anyone else's, including God's. But it is the best prayer because it demonstrates a desire to submit His will to your life, even in the midst of difficult or uncertain circumstances, and that you're willing to trust in Him for the outcome no matter what it is. Personally, when I pray for my children now, I seldom pray for what I think they need <laughs> because I've learned over the years that I don't know what they need, but God does. So I mostly pray the Lord's will be done in every aspect of their lives. I mean, that's how he taught us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Remember when Jesus was in the garden, he was faced with life-threatening circumstances. He too prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of his Father, even though he knew the road to Calvary would be extremely difficult. The will of God is always better than ours, as we're about to see when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany. Verse 8, But Rabbi, the disciples said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Now we can see there isn't much concern or compassion for Lazarus on the part of his disciples. Instead, they recognize that a return to Bethany, only two short miles from Jerusalem, would place Jesus and them in close proximity with those who recently attempted to assassinate Jesus. But let's see how Jesus responded. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So Jesus responds to their objection with this puzzling statement. Now what Jesus is basically saying here is that the father has given him an assignment to accomplish and the time is now to follow through on that assignment regardless of any potential trouble or interference. Jesus wasn't worried. Remember he only did what the father told him to do. And this situation would be no different because obedience to God is always the best course of action, even if it's difficult or invites danger. Now, let's be honest. Obeying Jesus isn't limited to the easy things. Because sometimes it involves going places we'd rather not go, or loving people we'd rather not love, or forgiving people we'd rather not forgive. These aren't easy commands to obey, but they are necessary because they're intended for our own good, whether we realize it or not. And furthermore, obedience to Jesus really measures the extent of our love for him. In fact, if you want to know how much you love Jesus, just take an honest look at your current level of obedience to him. Jesus practiced what he preached. And was committed to obeying his Father, no matter where it led, or how much resistance he encountered. Verse 11: Jesus continues, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there and wake him up." His disciples replied, "Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get better." Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So again, his disciples resist a return to Bethany. So then Jesus told them plainly look lazarus is dead and for your sake i'm glad i was not there so that you may believe but let's go to him then thomas also known as didymus said to the rest of the disciples let us also go that we may die with him so after this brief exchange his disciples concede to go along because they knew that it's better to live dangerously with jesus by your side Than to seek safety apart from him. Now, why were the disciples willing to follow Jesus into dangerous places? Well, I believe the answer is simple because they had nowhere else to go. I mean, they left everything to follow him. Back in John chapter 6, when many of his followers deserted Jesus, he turned to his disciples and said, Are you going to leave too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. You see, the disciples were all in, no matter where Jesus would lead them. They placed all their eggs in his basket. They did not diversify their portfolio. And as a result, they were not left with any competing loyalties to distract them away from what was most important which was a determined pursuit of an intimate relationship with Jesus. In other words, Jesus was their number one life priority. And I believe this highlights a concerning issue for the Western church today and one reason why the church has largely become ineffective as a viable alternative to the unbelieving culture. But also a reason why we sometimes struggle to grow in our faith and that is we too often live with divided loyalties although we want Jesus we also want everything the world has to offer also you see these are very dangerous times for the church not because of persecution but that is coming but because Western culture today offers us a smorgasbord of delights and pleasures that look good, feel good, and taste good. The problem is they feed our flesh and not our spirit, and they're in direct competition with Jesus for our loyalty. And John warned us about this very danger in his first epistle when he wrote, The world offers... Only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. But these are not from the Father. These things are from the world. You see, as followers of Jesus, we must be able to discern what is of the world and what is of God in our lives. Because we can't serve two masters, Jesus said. And when we try to serve two masters, it naturally creates divided loyalties. And that's dangerous because divided loyalties invite idolatry. And idolatry is when we permit anything or anyone to supersede God in our lives. It's when we long for or cultivate anything more than God. I believe it was John Calvin who said that our hearts are idol factories. And here in Western culture, we've never had more idols to play with and occupy our time. I often create a priority list at work. I list the things I need to accomplish during the week, and then I order them in order of importance. And I do that because I find it's difficult to function correctly or efficiently without a proper understanding of what's most important. Let me tell you, living the Christian life is exactly the same. Because in order to live the Christian life the way God designed it and intended, you must live out your priorities in the correct order. And if you cultivate or long for anything or anyone more than Jesus, that's idolatry. And if that's the case, your walk with Jesus is probably stuck in the mud whether you realize it or not. And I urge you to do whatever's necessary to get before the Lord and together reshuffle your priorities so that your relationship and pursuit of Jesus is firmly established at the top of your list. You see, self-examination is good, and we need to ask ourselves probing questions from time to time, such as, what are the primary pursuits in my life, and in what order? What are the things I cultivate and long for the most? Are they of the world, or are they of the kingdom? Where and how do I invest my time and my resources? And take an honest inventory of these things, then write them down, and then ask yourself this, where does my pursuit of Jesus rank on this list? And you need to be brutally honest with yourself when you're answering these questions. And then with God's help, make any necessary adjustments. There can only be one master in your life, and the disciples were committed to Jesus as their master, no matter where he led them even in the danger. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now I don't know about you, but this one surprises me. Because based upon the other two encounters Jesus had with that family, if you had asked me which of the sisters would have ran out to meet Jesus when he arrived, I would have bet my house on Mary, not Martha. After all, it was Mary that sat at his feet while Martha labored uninterested in the kitchen. And it was Mary that later poured perfume and ointment on Jesus and cleaned his feet with her hair. Surely Mary would be the one that raced out there to see him, as soon as he arrived in Bethany but not so because this was going to be Martha's time to shine verse 21 Lord Martha said to Jesus if you had been here my brother would not have died but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask Jesus said to her your brother will rise again and Martha said I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day and then it comes the granddaddy of all I am statements, in my opinion, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. When Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life, he left no doubt with regard to who he really was. He was not ambiguous. He made it very clear that the pathway to eternal life runs through him and him alone because he alone governs life and death. Now, when Jesus made this declaration, he didn't stop there. Why? Because his I am statement required a response. And so Jesus turned to Martha, and you can almost picture him looking deeply into her eyes as he continues by asking her the most important question anyone can ever answer. Martha, do you believe this? In essence, Jesus was asking her, do you believe I am who I say I am? And we must all answer that question, but here Martha has the honor of answering first. And she doesn't disappoint. Let's see how she responded. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Good answer, Martha. (laughs) She nailed it, an A+. In fact, she gets extra credit for this answer because she identified Jesus using three different titles. Lord, Messiah, which means Savior, and Son of God and the third title son of God is crucial to understanding who Jesus really is because she correctly identified his divine nature something even the trained religious leaders of that day failed to recognize well we know the rest of the story Jesus proved his declaration and dominion over death by raising Lazarus who had been dead four days And he left no room for doubt because he did it in front of many witnesses. But before I close, let me quickly suggest two additional takeaways from this passage. First, answer the question. Martha answered first, but we must all answer Jesus's follow-up question. You will never answer a more important question. And he claims to be the resurrection and the life. And he invites you to join him for all eternity by believing and trusting in him. Do you believe Jesus is who he said he was? And if you're here today and you've never done that, I urge you to visit our prayer room at the conclusion of the service today. Go in there and pray with somebody for your salvation. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Secondly, For those of you already in the kingdom, learn to embrace your appointment with death. Although none of us looks forward to it, if you're in Christ, you no longer have to fear the grave. So don't ignore the reality of the inevitable. Instead, use it to your advantage. Now, this is a biblical concept, not in a morbid way, but in a way that attaches a sense of urgency to the available time you have remaining. Ecclesiastes 7.4 puts it this way, A wise person thinks a lot about death, but a fool thinks only about having a good time. Don't be a fool. Be wise. Although none of us looks forward to physical death, it's a certainty for all of us. So whether you're young or old, healthy or not, none of that matters, frequently consider the fact that you're living on borrowed time, and you only get one shot at this life. There are no do-overs. There are no mulligans. And as you examine these things, another good question to ask yourself is this. If you learned that tomorrow would be your last day in this life, would you be ready? And if not, do something about it while you still can. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. Is there someone you need to forgive, apologize to, reconcile with, share the gospel with? Do you need to tell someone that you love them? Do you need to reorganize your priorities? Lazarus received an extension on his life, but that's rare. Someone once said, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. I believe that statement is true. Are you ready to die? Are you living each day like there's no tomorrow? Not to get the most out of this life, that's the world's reasoning, but instead to make the best use of the time Jesus is granting you. There's a difference. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus means everything to us. He is the bread of life, the light of the world. He is the gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, the true vine. He covered everything on our behalf. All we need to do is believe and follow. Lord, we thank you for making a way. Jesus, we love you and we're grateful for what you've done for us in our lives. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that has not yet believed in you, I pray they would have the courage to visit the prayer room. Lord, if there are folks here today that need to restructure their priorities and pursue Jesus and make him the number one priority in their life, Lord, I pray they too would have the courage to do so. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word because it impacts us and it transforms us. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.